Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Unheard Podcast. I'm Freddie Sayers. Today, we bring you highlights of a conversation we had earlier this week at the Unheard Club with Tom Holland, the brilliant historian, unheard contributor, and most recently hit podcaster from The Rest is History. He's just published the latest installation in his history of the Roman Empire, Gibbon, Prepare to Make Way. It's called Pax, and covers the period in the second century when Roman civilization was at the height of its powers. The Pax Romana covered all the lands around the Mediterranean and stretched all the way up to Hadrian's Wall. Partly, it's just fascinating to hear what this very different, very recent civilization was like. But it also throws new light on today's preoccupations. Questions of gender, for example, that dominate the culture wars would have a completely different answer from a Roman. And what if our own Western Empire, the Pax Americana, are there clues to be found to its survival or demise in the Pax Romana? If you'd like to be in the room next time, the Unheard Club is easy to join. Go to club.unheard.com to find out more. And now, over to Tom. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for coming tonight, and welcome back to the Unheard Club. Um, If you haven't been before, just a reminder, we are a small candle flame of independent thinking here in the shadowy realm of Westminster. Um, we may be close to the Palace of Westminster, but fear not, we are not infected by their way of thinking. In fact, the whole idea is to bring bigger thoughts, or hard-to-grasp, sometimes controversial ones, right into the heart of power and make them listen to it. Uh, On which point, it is exactly right that we have with us this evening none other than the great Tom Holland. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. Tom has been a friend of Unheard for some U-N-H-E-R-D. years. H-E-R-D. If you uh, tuned into any of the early episodes of Rest is History, you would have heard his beautifully done advert for Unheard, which, which went on for some weeks. We can't afford it now. It's got too big. Um, but before we say anything else, congratulations on that. What a, what a huge success. And I'm sure there are people here who are also enjoying it. Well-deserved. And it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, I'm loving this already. That's not what we're here to talk about. Um, This, what I'm holding here, is Tom's latest book. In fact, this is a bit of a scoop. It is published tomorrow, and this is the first time he is talking properly about it. Um, It's called Pax. It is the latest in his history of the Roman Empire. 
and it deals with a period where the empire was at its most successful, most peaceful. Um, I will be asking all sorts of basic questions about what it was like. Hopefully you can help transport us back to that time, but I guess obviously being a bit of a journalist, I will also try and see if there are any relevances, uh, whether by the, how different they are or similar, uh, that we might be able to kind of understand a bit better what feels like also quite a perilous and strange time that we're in today. Mm -hmm. So kick us off with the, the very first year. The, the, the book opens in AD 69. Well, this it is... actually, it, it opens in AD 68. Yes. Which is, um, <laughs> which, it, which is the year that Nero commits suicide. And the reason that I choose that year is firstly, because the previous book in the, in the series, Dynasty, ends in that year. So that makes sense. But it's also because the suicide of Nero is a key moment in Roman history and a very, very obvious crisis point because Nero is the last living descendant of Augustus and Augustus is a god. And so therefore to be descended from Augustus is to have his divine blood in your veins. And there is a feeling among the Roman people that this is what qualifies you to rule as a Caesar, to rule as an emperor. And so the question that then hangs over Rome in the wake of Nero's death is, what do we do now? Now that we no longer have um, a descendant of the divine Augustus treading this mortal earth of ours, how is Rome, how is its empire going to cohere? And so this is the question that hangs over the early chapters of the book. And that year that, it, that, that is kicked off by the death of Nero, yeah. uh, known as the Year of the Four Emperors. So the Year of the Four Emperors is the year that follows, AD 69. I'm very keen to get to 69. <laughs> Dates are so important. Yeah. Well, we've, we've just had our Year of, the, of Three Prime Ministers here. Yeah. I yes. mean, if, I guess... Yes, and even more chancellors, I think. Weren't there four chancellors? There may have been four chancellors. Yeah. Um, I, it, it, it was very AD 69 vibe, I, <laughs> I thought, last year. So if you are someone like the people who are here tonight, you know, maybe we're not senators, maybe we're not in the uh, absolute top rank of the, of the Roman society, but we are intelligent people, we're paying attention, and you are a Roman citizen, and that tumultuous period happens, what do you think you're feeling? Well, I think, uh, you know, we're just across from, from Westminster, uh, the, the political cockpit of, of this country, and there is no question that the elites in Rome still think that the Senate, which goes right the way back to the very beginnings of Rome, so um, senators supposedly were um, originally kind of formed into an order by Romulus, the founder of Rome, the man who gave his name to the, to the infant city, um, and right the way through the glory period of, of the Roman Republic, which is set up in the wake of the expulsion of the kings, the Senate feels that it is the brain of the Roman people. So the Senate and the people of Rome, it's the Senate that is guiding the destiny of Rome. And there is no question that under Augustus and then under his heirs, there are many senators who resent the power of the House of Caesar very, very profoundly. Uh, and they, they feel the jealousy of the kind of people who, you know, you're you're at school and you see your, your peer perhaps become prime minister. I mean, it's that level of jealousy. And 
senators with the death of Nero are kind of thinking, well, you know, um, maybe we could possibly restore some kind of senatorial government. I mean, not, not the Republic as it had previously existed, but perhaps, you know, one of our number could step up to the plate and we could kind of, you know, get rid of all this mad um, building golden houses and playing the lyre and all this kind of thing. Um, and so that is part of what is going on in the minds of the Senate. They are quite keen to see their traditional dignity restored to them. Of course, there are others who are thinking, um, this is a massive opportunity to, um, to, to, to get ahead. And one of their number is um, the captain of the, the Praetorian Guard, who thinks, you know, I, I could be the power player here. So um, I, I could perhaps kind of push my candidates. I could play the field or whatever. And then there are other people who, who simply don't care. So the vast mass of the people don't really care. They, they want to know that Caesar is going to do what the Caesars have done since the time of Augustus, which is basically to keep them fed and to keep them entertained, so bread and circuses. A general called um, Galba, who is from a, a very, very distinguished senatorial family, so he is one of those people who would consider himself to be a PSA of the Caesars. He is out in Spain, he has money, he has armies, he has the backing of um, the various other officials who are also in Spain, and he thinks, I'm gonna have a crack at it. And so he marches on Rome, and the Senate fall behind him because they feel this is a guy who we can do business with. He is kind of one of our number. Now, by this point, there aren't many of the old senatorial elite left. They are basically, you know, under the Caesars, they have been treated like kind of exotic beasts, kept alive, but very much in cages. But now with Galba, he's got out of his cage and he's determined to do what he can to try and get Rome back into, into shape. And Galba very much feels that the Romans need licking into shape. Hmm. He is a, a kind of an embodiment of the old martial disciplinarian values that, you know, when confronted with a mutiny, you kill um, every 10 man in the legion, the decimation policy. Um, he is a great one for thinking that, they, that the poor of, the, of Rome should subsist on turnips, in, as happened in the good old days. And this is the kind of regime that he wants to install. What you just said actually is somewhat, it felt to me, of a recurring theme, which is this sort of movement between what's considered a decadence yeah. and then this kind of reassertion of either a kind of more manly martial um, atmosphere or return to how things used to be, to the, to the good old days. And with each new emperor in this amazing narrative, often it feels like there's that same kind of mood, which is, you know, things have got a bit, um, bit, bit soft. We're going to return to proper Rome. Do you, do you think that's a, a recurring I think mood? it's absolutely a dynamic that runs throughout this period, and it reflects a, a moral anxiety on the part of the Romans that, that has, has, has been characteristic of them um, really from the time that they start conquering massively wealthy cities in the East, so the cities in, in Asia Minor or um, Syria or, or most of all in, in, in Egypt. And there's this anxiety that this wealth is sapping, that it's, it's, it's feminizing them, that it's making them weak, it's making them soft, even as it is felt that, you know, the purple... The, um, the spectacular array of seafood, 
the gold, the splendid marble with which Rome can be beautified, that this is properly what Romans should have because they are the rulers of the world. And so there is that incredible tension. And it's heightened by class anxieties because again, the, the, there is no, there's no snob like a senatorial snob. They want to distinguish themselves from the masses. But at the same time, there's the anxiety that if they do this in, in too Greek a way, in too effeminate a way, then are they really Romans? And this is the kind of the, the, the tension that Galba embodies, mm. is that actually when they're confronted with someone who really believes in the kind of the antique acorn eating, um, don't wear purple kind of olden days approach, they don't really like it. Um, and, and so the whole way through, through this period, the issue of, of, of how you can enjoy your wealth if you are, if you are a very, very wealthy Roman without seeming un-Roman is a kind of enduring tension. And of course, there is no figure in the empire who, who has to wrestle with that tension more um, significantly than Caesar himself. And it feels, you know, this is where I do think there maybe is a, a relevance that this is the, this is the apogee. This is the period of greatest peace and prosperity and power, the hundred odd years that you're covering in this volume. And yet at each juncture, it feels like there's this anxiety. That's what surprised me as a, as a reader. There's this sort of yeah. sense of the precariousness of the empire, or maybe it's become soft, or maybe it's decadent, or maybe it needs to rediscover how it well, should really be. You, that surprised me. And you see, this is the significance of AD 69, the year of the four emperors, because the, the question is, are the cycles of civil war that brew? I mean, so, so, so basically Otho's become emperor. There's a guy up in the north, the, the commander of, of the, uh, a, a stretch of the, of the Rhine, who basically gets bullied by the legions into making a claim for the empire himself, a man called Vitellius, very distinguished father. He is enormously fat. He's famous for eating pies. And, uh, you know, there are descriptions of him, uh, satirical descriptions of the whole of Italy shaking as the equivalent of Greg's hurtles towards him, loaded down with pasties and, you know, vegan sausage. He wouldn't have vegan, but, you know, sausage rolls and all this kind of thing. So, so he's, he's one character. And then Otho dies, Vitellius is killed, and he gets replaced ultimately by a guy called Vespasian, who um, is, he's a kind of basic, you know, he's, he's from out of town. He's from the countryside outside Rome. It's said of him that, that he has an expression like a man straining for a shit. He's a guy who likes a kind of earthy joke. He's, he's, he he's kind of embodies, again, a bit like Galba had done, but in a more plebeian way, the old rustic virtues mm. of Rome. And so he establishes his rule. Um, but you're right that throughout, that, that the anxiety about whether this cycle of civil war, first of all, has been bred by the, the the failings of empire, that people have become too soft, that they've become too decadent, they've become too depraved. And secondly, whether the civil wars are expressive of faults and a kind of dry rot in the fabric of the empire that, that, that is terminal. And so people throughout the course of not just AD 69, this fateful year, but the decades or so that follow, whether the cycles of civil war are reflective of the anger of the gods and that therefore the Romans need to find a way to appease the gods so that the whole empire doesn't collapse. This is an anxiety that lingers for several decades and is the kind of, 
you know, it looks to us like this is the heyday of the empire. They're building the Colosseum. They're, you know, they're building great temples everywhere. What they've got to worry about is have the gods turned against us? Mm. And of course, there is a very, very famous uh, incident. I mean, one of the most famous incidents in not just Roman, but, but ancient history full stop that happens 10 years after the era of the four emperors, which is the explosion of Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeian Herculaneum. And this is definitely, I think, seen as another warning omen. from the gods because it coincides with a, a terrible plague in Rome and it coincides with the incineration for the second time in a decade of the most significant um, uh, temple in Rome, which is the, the great temple to Jupiter on the Capitol, the most sacred hill of the seven hills of Rome. This is burned down twice in the period of a decade. And so people are thinking, oh, God, you know. It's not looking I good. Mean, you know, uh, it, it's really not looking good because, because the gods, for the Romans, uh, you offer sacrifice to the gods or you pay your dues to the gods rather in the way that we take out an insurance policy. Hmm. And, and if, if the gods are busy burying, you know, famous towns on the Bay of Naples beneath pyroclastic flows or sending plagues or burning down temples, then this, to, to, to most Romans, is evidence for the fact that, that the Roman people have not been paying their dues um, and that therefore disaster threatens. And so I think a lot of what is going on in certainly the imperial centre in, in, in this period is an attempt to try and get the Roman Empire back on a kind of stable moral footing. I'm just going to read a quote. You mentioned Vespasian. This, he's the, the fourth of these four who then actually manages to survive and last for uh, a good stretch of time. Um, he comes back uh, with a big triumph after um, it's the Judean yeah. uh, revolt, I think, that he managed to suppress. Um, and the, this is a quote from Tom's book. The result was a spectacle such as the Roman people had not witnessed for a long while, one that transported them back to an age where every year, it seemed, had brought them news of fresh victories, fresh conquests, fresh triumphs. Um, Time-honoured elements of the ritual, familiar to younger spectators only from history books, were thrillingly and flamboyantly resurrected. It was as though ancient history had come alive. And on his coins, he actually puts Roma resurgens. Yeah, which Rome is back. Yeah, it's a kind Make of... Make Rome great again. Well, it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know where I'm going with yeah. this. Yeah. It, it, that, that same slightly kind of histrionic, spectacular... Murga. Murga, I guess. Uh, <laughs> is there that... There is that kind of theatrical chasing of the kind of grandeur that's just lost. It's so... So the whole Trump... Uh, I had, you know, the biggest parade, it's the best, you know, all that kind of thing. There is an element of that about the triumph that Vespasian and his son Titus, who is, so Vespasian, he's in a position to make himself emperor because he had been sent out by Nero to suppress a revolt by the Judeans. Um, and he had, he, Vespasian has, has made himself emperor, so he's no longer um, bothering with the Judeans and he leaves behind his eldest son Titus, who is the general who, in AD 70, captures Jerusalem and notoriously destroys the temple with momentous long-term consequences that are still with us. And they both come back and they're voted a triumph by the Senate. Now, this is, this is the triumph that I'm describing in the passage, and it's a tremendous show. You know, chariots are going through and prisoners and great floats 
kind of scenes, billboards illustrating all the great conquests that have been made, treasure being carried through, famously the, the, the great menorah taken from Jerusalem, which you can still see on the Arch of Titus in, in between the Forum and the Colosseum. Um, it's all a bit bogus, though, because actually, well, two things. Firstly, um, they're not entitled to celebrate a triumph because Judea had already been a part of the Roman Empire and you don't celebrate triumphs over rebellious peoples. You only celebrate triumphs over people who have been freshly conquered. So that's bogus. And the second thing that's bogus is that the Judeans really weren't a very significant enemy. Um, they, so on the floats, they're shown you know, enormous great armies, massive phalanxes, giant fleets. The Judeans did not have these. They were kind of a guerrilla people. Jerusalem was the only significant citadel that they had. And it really wasn't that rich. Um, so most of the gold, actually, most of the treasure has been extorted from the various provincials across the east. And it's this money that in the long run will go to fund the, the, the Colosseum. But the Colosseum is kind of framed as a building that is built with the loot that these emperors have won. And the literal meaning of an emperor, imperator is a general. So Vespasian is casting himself as simultaneously an emperor in our sense and an imperator, a general in the kind of traditional Republican sense. And he's trying to fuse the two. But it is all a bit bogus. Mm. Um, and of course, people are happy to go along with it. I want to take a slight detour to one theme that really jumped out at me. And I guess I had no idea about, which was the centrality of questions of gender and sex. Or at least they, they oh, you love that and unheard, oh, don't I'm sorry. you? <laughs> I was. Were they I gender not... critical? Is what you're asking. Well, we, we, I'm not going to go all the way there, but it does strike. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, all of these. You think of the Roman Empire at this period. You think the Greeks had this kind of gay thing going on. You don't really know about that. <laughs> at least I didn't in the Roman context. But it turns out that all of these very kind of masculine generals who in sequence in your book become uh, emperors, uh, pretty much all of them are um, having sex with young men. Didn't know that. Well, not, not just young men. Um, <laughs> we'll come to that. Yeah, so, so there, is a, there is always a temptation, I think, to emphasize the way in which the Romans are like us. You know, a mirror held up to our own civilization. But I think what is much more interesting. It's the way in which they are nothing like us, because it, it opens up to you a sense of how various human culture can be. And it, it, sex, ideas of sex and gender, which you think were kind of stable. I mean, you know, everyone has a gender, um, everyone has sex. And, and yet the Roman understanding of gender and sex is, is very, very different to ours. So for us, I think it, it, it does revolve around gender, the idea that there are men and there are women, and obviously that can be contested as is happening at the moment. But, but the fundamental idea is that you, know, you are defined by what, your, by, by what your gender is. So are you heterosexual or are you homosexual? That's probably the great binary. For the Romans, this is not a binary. They're not really interested in that. So there's a description in Suetonius, the imperial biographer of Claudius, where it said, it's, you know, he only ever slept with women. And this is seen as an interesting foible in the way that you might say <laughs> of someone, you know, he, he only ever slept with blondes. I mean, it's kind of interesting, but it doesn't define him sexually. 
Anne of Galba, you know, this martinet, this, this, this upright embodiment of ancient Republican value. Again, Suetonius says of him, he only ever slept with males. And again, this is seen as a foible. I mean, it's interesting, you know, it's like sleeping only with brunettes. But again, it doesn't absolutely define him. What does define a Roman in the opinion of, um, uh, of Roman moralists is basically whether you are, and I'm, apologies for, for, for the language that I'm not going to use, but I mean, essentially, if you are using your penis as a, as a kind of sword to penetrate. dominate and penetrate and subdue people who are there to be subdued. And the people who are there to be subdued, I mean, the people who are there to, to, to receive your Roman thrusting, terrifying penis are, of course, women um, and slaves and essentially anyone who is not a citizen. So the binary is basically between Roman citizens, who are, who are all by definition men, and everybody else. Now, a, the, a, a Roman woman, um, if, you know, if she's of, of, of citizen status, she can't be used willy-nilly, but pretty much anyone else can. And that means that it doesn't, you know, if you're a Roman householder, your familiar is not just your blood relatives, it's everybody in your household. It's your dependents, it's your slaves, whatever. You can use these dependents, you can use these slaves any way you want. And if you want to use um, the scullery maid or the page boy, then go for it. Why? I mean, you really should. And basically, if you're not doing it, then there's something wrong with you. So they did. And so they did, yes. So, so they... The, the Romans have the same word for, for urinate and ejaculate. So essentially, the, the orifices of, of slaves, and they could be men, women, uh, boys, girls, are the equivalent of urinals for, for, for Roman men. I mean, it's kind of an expense of, of, of bodily mm. fluid. And this for us is so hard to, to get around. And the corollary in turn of that is that um, the worst, most humiliating thing that can happen to a Roman male citizen is to be treated like a girl. So for them, the kind of idea that um, being trans is, is something to be celebrated would seem the maddest, most depraved, lunatic thing that you could possibly argue. For a man to be treated as a woman, this is the most monstrous humiliation. And it doesn't matter whether, you're, whether it's involuntary. So Vitellius, who, as a, who ends up as emperor, as a young man, he had, had joined Tiberius, the emperor, on, on the island of Capri, and it was said that he had been um, used like a girl by um, Tiberius. And so throughout his life, he was known as sphincter. Stuck and this, and, and, yes, and it was a kind of mark of shame that he could never get rid of. And there was an assumption that, that, that even if the rumour of it attached to you, you are kind of stained for life. Hmm. Uh, and if you enjoy it, then you are absolutely the, the lowest of the low. And, and yet, that all sounds very kind of physical and sexual, and, and yet there are, there are love stories in this period. Well, um, you know, yeah. We, you, you end, we have, I just got to read a couple of things out. I mean, Trajan, this is an example of the, the tension that Thomas just talked about. Trajan, who is described as the best of emperors in your book, who is, whose hair is cut short to show his manly simplicity, um, had uh, such a passion for boys that an Assyrian king looking to win the emperor's favor had secured it by getting his son to perform some barbaric dance or other. So that's the kind of decadent yeah. type that you've been talking about. But then the book ends 
with the love affair between the Emperor right. Hadrian okay. yes. and Antinous, yes. which is, feels very emotional and very different. And I think it is, because of course this imposes enormous strains on people. I mean, sexual moral standards do impose strains. Not everyone's sexuality is suited to cohering to a, a, a governing moral code. And for people who, you know, want to be um, a, a passive partner, who enjoy it, who, who, who gain emotional sustenance from it, I mean, it must have been excruciating, psychically excruciating. Um, and of course, it, it also serves as a license for, for what we would absolutely recognize as exploitation, but the Romans did as well. I mean, so you talked about how ultimately the, the great erotic ideal for, for Roman men in this period is less girls than boys who look like girls. So it's very blur. <laughs> boys who like girls who like, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, so the, the quintessence of this, the quintessence, yes, yeah, so, so these are boys who are called delicati. They are, so they would wear makeup, they'd have their hair done in, in feminine styles, they would be dressed as girls. And the more feminine they look, the more of a status symbol they are. And so people are willing to, you know, senators are willing to lavish fortunes on them. And as is always the case, it's Nero who has gone the furthest with this because he, his, his beloved wife, Papaya Sabina, who it is said he had kicked to death because he'd come back late from the chariots and she had nagged him. And so he kicked her in the stomach. I mean, we don't know if this is true. It's probably not, but you know, he adored her. And so he looks around for someone who looks like Papaya and he finds this young boy and he castrates him. And the poor boy from that point on has to live as Papaya Sabina. So that's the kind of the ultimate. But there are others throughout. I mean, just, let's just tell a bit more. That story was so extraordinary. Um, Sporus. Spunk gets, in Greek. Spunk yeah. in Greek, this, this poor um, I mean, the Romans are really it. not like us. Yeah, I mean, I mean they really that. are not like us. Um, but so but this um, creature gets castrated, as you say, and so much so, and, and basically pretends to be the Popeye yeah. Sabina, re yeah. come back to life. And you say that an immense reward was offered to anyone capable of implanting a uterus into the eunuch. So there's a, there, there, he's literally trying yeah. to turn this person into a woman. I, I, and of course can't do that. But when Nero dies, this, this poor boy becomes um, a trophy of war. So um, Otho takes him, um, and then uh, Vitellius thinks, well, it's, it's used goods. So he has this brilliant way. You think it'll, be, you know, he'll, it'll make him popular with the Roman people. He will, he will have um, Sporus dressed up as, as Persephone, being raped by gladiators dressed as Hades, gang raped to death in the arena. And he thinks this is tremendous entertainment. You know, it's kind of like World Cup or whatever. Everyone will love it. And of course, Boris kills himself, I mean, as he would, faced with that. So it's horrible, horrible stuff. And throughout this period, there, the, the scale of exploitation is, to our way of thinking, unspeakable. But it's not to the Romans. And that's the kind of gear shift that you have to try and, and make, is to see how and why it would be morally justified for them. However, having said that, I mean, you mentioned that Hadrian and Antinous. I think Hadrian, who is... So that actually is a love affair. It I think seems. it. I, well, I, so so Antinous is a young boy who Hadrian seems to have met. Hadrian's great 
travel around the empire. You know, he even comes to the, the, the barbarous reaches of Britain, he, Newcastle, I mean, imagine. Builds a wall. Yeah, unspeakable <laughs> barbarism. But, he, but, but he's very, very devoted to Greece, and so he travels extensively across the Greek world. And it's while he's doing that that he meets with this, um, this, this young boy, Antinous, who is stunningly handsome. And in between Nero's reign and Hadrian's, the making of eunuchs has been made illegal. So you, you're not allowed to have eunuchs. And I think there's the sense that Antinous has the beauty of a eunuch. That is what makes him so precious, but he's not a eunuch. And, and Hadrian sends him back to Rome to be kind of educated, to be given the, the kind of the cultural upbringing that a, a partner of Caesar should properly have. And then I guess when, when he, he's probably 14, 15, 16, comes under Hadrian's wing. Now, to our way of thinking, that would be grooming, pure and simple. I mean, it, absolutely. But that's not, I think, how the, certainly how the Romans saw it. I think it's not how the Greeks saw it because they recognized that the relationship between Hadrian and uh, Antinous was, Hadrian was behaving like a Greek. He wears a beard like a Greek philosopher. He, um, he, he was known as a young man as Gryculus, the little Greek. Um, there's a sense in which Hadrian's adoption of a, a beautiful Greek boy is like um, Zeus sweeping up Ganymede to be his cupbearer, or Hercules and Hylas. Um, so he gets special license. Yeah, so, so I think the Greeks feel it's, you know, it's flattering to them. Now the question that is unknowable is how Antinous felt about it. And it, I, I mean, I personally cannot imagine he would have been anything other than on one level very grateful to have been given, you know, to be, to be raised up from a provincial backwater and given, um, you know, everything that he gets from Hadrian. However, at the same time, it's possible that it inflicts untold psychic damage on him because Antinous ends up dead in very mysterious circumstances in Egypt at exactly the time where he is starting to, to sprout a beard and to, and to bulk up. And the question of whether, you know, he's, he, he kills himself, whether he is murdered, whether he's offered up in sacrifice to the gods. All of these are theories that are current at the time. Um, another theory which I, I have some sympathy with is the idea that he, he fakes his own death and maybe just runs away. I mean, you know, we don't know. And this is part of the problem with the sources is, of course, we do want, you know, we, we so often want to know what, what is going on in the heads of people. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to get it. Is there anything about them that you think they got more right? Than the, than the successor morals, the, the Christians and all of us that came since. I mean, when you're spending time with them in this way, are there things that you admire and things you think we've lost in the... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Justinera that the Romans had. The question that haunts me whenever I write about them is... Why am I so fascinated by them? I've always been fascinated by them. When, when I went to Sunday school and there would be, you know, the pictures of, of Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate, I was always on the side of Pontius Pilate. <laughs> you know, he was kind of glamorous. He had eagles. He had kind of purple robes. Jesus was a massive scruff. <laughs> Much preferred the Romans. And I think that that speaks to something that is deep, that, that is kind of inherent. It, there is a kind of admiration and a dread and a, a kind of an appeal in, in power. I mean, power is, the display of power is exciting. But I think it's hard for us to acknowledge that, partly because we are, are so influenced by the weathering effect of centuries and millennia of Jewish and Christian thinking but also because we exist in the shadow of the fascists. And the fascists were the first people, the first groups of people um, in the history of Christian Europe who consciously repudiated not so much institutional, the institutions of Christianity as the French or the Russian revolutionaries did, but the, the core morality of Christianity. So they re absolutely rejected the idea that um, you know, the last should be first. They, they completely repudiate that. Kind of, and that's why I think for us, the Nazis are the quintessence of evil, the embodiment of evil. And so the fear, I think, I think we've internalized the fear of identifying with the Romans is that we, we risk becoming fascist by doing that. Mm. There's something about the kind of, you, you talk about power. And in the story that you tell in this book, it's very different very different from today because the, the power is so unvarnished and present. And yeah. these emperors in succession are most of them generals and they pretty much win their place there through bloodshed and with armies at their back. So that feels very, very different to today where there's all sorts of other ideas about why certain people are in power. Whilst the, 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 the sort of presence of force is yeah. never far away in your story. So Trajan is called the Optimus Princeps, the best of emperors. Basically, 
because he goes back to doing what the Romans had been doing um, in, in the kind of heroic age of the Republic, which is conquering barbarians and nicking all their money. Um, and this is tremendous. So Trajan really does deserve a triumph. You know, he, he conquers Dacia, this very, very gold and silver rich territory that kind of occupies what's now Romania. Um, and this is seen as absolutely splendid. Uh, he comes back and he lavishes money on, on Rome. He builds the kind of the great port that enables Rome to be fed directly by ships coming in, kind of deep sea, deep water port. And it's, it's Trajan who funds the final transformation of the center of Rome into this great monumental complex, which I think is what people imagine. So if you, if, you know, the, the, the Rome of Gladiator, that's the Rome that has been built by Trajan. And it's great that I think that in Gladiator, the Colosseum and the temples and you know, the, the, the marble is over the top because it should be. CGI Lingling. is, Trajan mm. is, is CGIing what had existed before. He's transforming Rome into something so over the top that you would scarcely believe it was possible. That's, that's the whole point. This is why he's remembered as the best of emperors. But, you know, there is no attempt to, um, to kind of say, well, we did it for the benefit of the barbarians. Um, we didn't really kill that many. You know, Trajan builds an enormous great column. I mean, Freud would have a field day. And he decorates it with scenes of, of, of the conquest of Dacia. Mm. He's all in favor of it. So do you think, if you, if you survey this period, and the incredible success of the Roman Empire, that it managed to last for such a long time and reach such a huge geographical expanse. Do you think part of that success is due to the fact that so much of the power was concentrated in one person and there was such a, a focus on the imperator? So Gibbon famously said that, that the period that followed the rule of Vespasian and his two sons, so... Um, including Trajan and, and Hadrian, was when the, the, the condition of mankind was at, at its happiest and most prosperous. And on one level, you know, listening to me talk about this period, you might think, well, that's, that's insane. It sounds horrible. And, and, and of course, for lots of people, it was horrible. And yet, at the same time, you know, this western edge of Eurasia was bound together in a single political entity, and with the exception of the era of the four emperors, the occasional revolt, you know, as in Judea, occasionally in Britain, you know, Judeans are kind of uprising every, every so often, but by and large, vast stretches of the world that previously had been convulsed by, by internecine conflict are, are, are stable. The whole of the Mediterranean is under a unitary power. The Romans call it Mare Nostrum, our sea. And what that, the only time that that's ever happened in recorded history. And the consequence of that is that you get an equivalent of globalized trade. Hmm. Um, different areas of the empire can start specializing in aspect, you know, aspects of economic activity that they're particularly suited to, confident that there is a single framework of law, that there are shipping lanes that will be patrolled, that won't be kind of uh, attacked by pirates. And so the economy really is, by the standards of what had gone before, very, very golden in this period. I've got a quote for you. 
This is from Pliny, which you quote in your book. So he says, who would deny now that the greatness of Rome's empire enables opposite ends of the globe to communicate with one another, that life is improved by the interchange of commodities, by a partnership in the blessings of peace, and by the general availability of things. This does sound yeah. a little bit like what we live in today, in that the, it's a, it's a yeah. semi-globalized so free market. I, so in the introduction, I quote um, Professor of Economics at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he says, and I am not remotely qualified to say whether he is right or not on this, um, that in his opinion, um, the condition of the Roman Empire in the second century under Trajan and Hadrian, that this was the, the wealthiest economy prior to the emergence of modern capitalism in the Netherlands and England in the 17th century. So I don't know whether that's true, mm. but you know, I don't know about China or whatever, but, 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 but it is objectively the case that I think based on the amount of raw material that can be excavated in archeological sites, the number of shipwrecks relative to other periods that have been found on the, on the, the, the floor of the Mediterranean, that this is a spectacularly wealthy period. Um, and people like Pliny absolutely celebrate it. Now there are people who see in this wealth evidence of Rome's monstrosity. One obvious text, I think the greatest and most influential anti-imperial text ever written, is the book of Revelation with its vision of the whore of Babylon. And, and Babylon, which is Rome, is, um, is described as a city that is glutted on the wealth of the world that is brought to Rome. And in the book of Revelation, the downfall of Babylon, of Rome, is precipitated by the cutting of these trade links. So it's very, very clear-eyed sight that the metropole is dependent on the links that it has with the kind of the outer provinces. Very, very clear-eyed. But it's also, it's, there are Romans as well who are very, very anxious about this. And the most influential of these, and again, very kind of, I think, influential into the modern period, is Tacitus, the great historian. And Tacitus is, you know, so Tacitus comes up with this, he writes the biography of his, um, his uh, father-in-law, Agricola, who's the governor of Britain, who um, presides over Britain for several years. He's the one who almost conquers the whole island, who kind of invades Scotland. And, and, um, and Tacitus puts into the mouth of the, um, the Scottish, the Caledonian leader who gets defeated by Agricola that they create a, a desert and call it peace, you know, which is kind of famous line. But Tacitus also more momentously, he describes how Agricola fosters the arts of civilization in Britain. He gets the, the, the natives to start wearing togas and enjoy fine dining and have baths and all this kind of thing. And Tacitus says that the, 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 the stupid natives started doing this thinking that what they took to be the marks of civilization, and these were actually the marks of their servitude. And Tacitus is not writing this as a kind of, you know, post-colonial lecture in post-colonial studies or anything. He's not kind of saying, oh, it's terrible that we've conquered the Britons. What he's doing is he is saying the, that the Britons are being seduced into the kind of moral decrepitude that has already paralyzed the Romans. So Tacitus' understanding is that all the greatness of the empire 
is simply sapping and destroying everything that originally had made the Romans great. And that's why he's so excited by Trajan, why he and so many others think that Trajan is, is the best of emperors, because Trajan is embarking on all these brilliant conquests. And so Tacitus and, and other Romans who think like him, briefly under Trajan, are able to think, brilliant, we can have our cake and eat it. You know, we can have all this wealth and we can have all the conquests. Trajan has shown that we can go off and conquer the Dacians, we can go off and conquer the Mesopotamians. But then it all goes tits up because um, Trajan, like so many other uh, people in Western history, invades Iraq and it all goes horribly wrong. Takes it too far. He takes it too far. He pushes too far. And Hadrian then has to retrench. So Trajan pulls the legions back out of Mesopotamia and he decides that actually Roman power has a kind of a natural limit because the people beyond it don't really deserve what, what we can give them. They don't deserve these gifts of civilization. But it's not in any way a kind of um, an admission that, I mean, Roman pa Hadrian thinks absolutely the Romans could go out and conquer people if they wanted to, but, but these people don't deserve to be conquered. They don't deserve to be given the baths and everything. And so this is why he, he builds these kind of frontier systems along the empire, of which Hadrian's Wall is the most famous. It's, it's not in any way an admission of defeat. It's the equivalent of building, um, well, it's the equivalent of, the, of that enormous fence that they build around Glastonbury during the festival. It's kind of saying, you know, people brilliant. inside it, you can come and hear Elton John, it'll be brilliant, have a great time, you can go glamping, but all you, you know, you proles outside, you can't come in. And that's basically what Hadrian's Wall is. That's what it is. I'm going to throw one last really hard question at you because it's so broad in its scope. And it's sort of the one advertised on the poster, which is, you may not want to give an easy answer to, but thinking about where we are today, a lot of people worry that we are somehow rather like the Roman Empire in its declining phases. You, know, you hear this a lot. There's the sense that this world that seemed totally everlasting is crumbling and breaking. Um, in a way, I read your book and, and was filled of hope because it starts with what feels like the end of the world and there's four emperors and it's all chaos and then they have 100 years of peace straight afterwards. Yeah. So maybe the moment we feel now is more like that than the actual end of the Roman Empire. What, what, what do you feel? Do you think we are in a, in a, does it feel to you like we are on the downslope of a civilization? Um, I, I, I think we are going through a process of um, moral, ethical change that is more analogous to the Reformation than to anything you can get in Roman history. But I think that, that Rome provides us with a kind of enduring model. You know, we are shadowed by the sense that if you have a moment in the sun, if you have greatness, then you are doomed as an empire to decline and fall because the, the, the collapse is so total. Uh, and I think that the contrast is with China, which is an equally great empire in this period, you know, getting very kind of rich at the far, far end of Eurasia. Um, and of course, over over the centuries, China, as Rome does, will succumb to barbarians. Barbarians will become emperors. The Chinese empire will disintegrate, be reconstituted, disintegrate, be reconstituted, have kind of barbarians rule it and so on. And yet, in a sense, always remain China. The sense that there is a kind of an entity called China endures. 
we do not in the modern world in the West have a sense of, of there being, you know, Romania, a, a land of the Romans, the land of, of, of Rome, because that has long gone. And so I think that for us, probably far more than for, for, for people in China, the sense that golden ages are delusory and that the greatest empire is merely a provocation and that it will succumb and be destroyed. It's kind of bred of a combination of the Book of Revelation and Gibbon's decline and fall. And it's kind of fused to give us this sense that you can't be great in the long run, it will collapse. Which I think is why the, the kind of the Roman imperial architecture of Washington, say, it, it provides such scope for science fiction, for apocalyptic visions. Because you just have to look at, you know, the, Lincoln Monument or whatever, to think, oh, your, your fall is coming, you know, <laughs> it, it, you're doomed. You know, the Capitol, the building will be kind of torched, which is also, of course, um, what made the, uh, the, the, the Capitol riot, I think, so emotionally satisfying for so many people. Because that, you know, the shaman with his horns, mm. I mean, this is kind of hardwired into our minds that this is what happens to, to places that call themselves the capital. You know, barbarians do come and, uh, you know, the order collapses. If you are watching online, either live or after the event, most of the people here are members of the Unheard Club, I'm happy to say. And if you are not yet, go to club.unheard.com and sign up because it's the only way you're gonna get into oversubscribed blockbuster events like this. Um, how much credit can you give the emperors for Pax Romana and how much was it just kind of good timing and circumstance? So that is a great question because of course, the emphasis in the narratives is always on the, on the emperors because they are the focus of, 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 um, of, of, of most of the histories. And when you are writing um, not just a history, but a portrait of the world in this time, it is quite difficult to get perspectives that are not centered on the imperial capital or, or still more on the figure of the emperor himself. I think that there are very few emperors who um, qualitatively affect the running of the empire and the course of events. I, I think that Hadrian is one of them. So it's clearly true of Augustus. Augustus, I think, is the greatest political genius in certainly in the history of, of, of the West and, and perhaps of all time. His achievement in reconstituting the imploding republic Setting, up, setting Rome and her empire back on firm foundations and doing so to such effect that with the exception of the, the, the civil war year of AD 69, peace endures for essentially two centuries and more. Um, and the idea of, of Rome as a world empire endures right the way up to the 15th century. I mean, I think it is a stunning, stunning achievement. No other emperor really um, can rival that. I would say over the sweep of Roman, Roman history, say, up to when, when the empire in the West collapses. Hadrian is, a, a, I think, an emperor who, by stabilizing the empire, um, by constructing what in effect is a frontier, although it's not cast as that, by acknowledging Rome, the natural limits of the empire, and above all, by 
integrating the Greek world into the fabric of, of, of Roman imperial culture in a way that in time we can come to talk of, of Greco-Roman culture. I think he's a, he is a significant figure. I think the next significant player is um, Diocletian for his achievement in, in stabilizing the empire when it looks as though it might completely disintegrate at the end of the third century. And then of course there's Constantine for his, um, his, his licensing of Christianity. Um, so I would say that be between Augustus and the, the final collapse of the empire in the West, there are really only three significant emperors. But having said that... So the many, many people in between, these are centuries in between those figures. So who's running it then? Is it the, the deep state of Rome is in charge? <laughs> well... Who's keeping things going? The, the, the truth is that it's the legions that are keeping it going. Um, without the legions, there, are, there, there is no peace. Um, and, and peace packs the title of the book. For us, we tend to think of it as a slightly passive uh, noun, but for the Romans, it's very active. Pax is something that you impose at the point of a sword, and it is maintained by the presence of legions, basically along the frontiers. Uh, and these legions have to be paid for. And there's a case for saying that the whole Roman Empire is a kind of an army with a kind of piggy bank attached to it. The whole empire essentially exists to provide the legions with the money that then enables the empire to exist. Um, it, I think we are so habituated to the idea of there being Roman legions. You know, you think of Hadrian's Wall, um, or you think of the legions in Asterix or whatever. Uh, I mean, all the, the kind of, the, the, the idea that Rome and legions, you just take them for granted. But a, a, a legio originally meant a levy. So it was the kind of thing that every city in the ancient world had, every tribal entity had, a kind of a levy of uh, those men who were able to fight. The fact that a, that a legion ends up as something very different, a professional army, you know, stationed where it has to be stationed, this is such an odd thing. It's such an odd thing to have. And again, it's the genius of Augustus that enables it, these to be set up. Without the legions, there is no empire. Did women figure in the Roman Empire at all? Was there a woman, was a power behind the throne? Was there any threat from a powerful woman? Um, or were they really all very, very subservient over this, this period of two centuries? Roman men have a kind of ambivalent attitude towards women in their families. Um, because on the one hand, it is the role of a, of a, a man to... Um, to keep his, his subordinates in order, and women rank as subordinates. A paterfamilias has power of life and death over all his family, including the women. So there's, the, you know, there's, no, there's no matriarchy in Rome. But having said that, historically, um, women have important roles to play in the dynastic politics that is the fabric of, of, of the way that the Republic had functioned. It depended on women going out and marrying other people to kind of, you know, to join them and then, if needs be, leaving them and marrying someone else. So that did give to, 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 to Roman women in the aristocracy a really significant role. And that is something that endures into this period. So 
dynastic alliances between great families is something that, that women are doing. Their, their role basically is to stick up for their father and brothers. Their husbands, by and large, are, are less significant. So that's important. Um, in the Julio-Claudian period, so the period that follows, the, well, during Augustus and the reign that follows up to, um, up to Nero, women become incredibly powerful because if men have the, have the blood of Augustus in his veins, then so do women. And that gives them a, a massive authority that is kind of divinely sanctioned. And by and large, the men who are writing the histories are terrified by this. So that's why, you know, names of people like Livia, if you think of the role that she has in um, I, Claudius, and then reconstituted in The Sopranos. I mean, kind of the most terrifying mother, perhaps, in, in, any, in any drama. Uh, Messalina, you know, uh, her very name is a kind of byword for sexual depravity. Agrippina, the mother of, of Nero. Um, these, these are portrayed in the histories as kind of terrifying predatory viragos. And I think that that is a kind of tribute to the power that they have. In the wake of, of the extinction of the family of Augustus, that power is obviously cut off and, and women again become, and certainly in the sources, start to become to play a more subordinate role, but they are very powerful. I mean, you do not offend a powerful woman. If you are lower down the scale, I think your life is pretty terrible. Do you think the, these distinctive moral codes of the, uh, the Romans and things we talk about, were they fairly representative of the, the neighboring cultures, excluding the, the Jews, but the other, um, like the Gauls? The Romans pretty much take for granted that their, their culture is the best, that they have the best morals, they have the best laws, that they are the most God-loving people in the world. And the proof, the proof of this is the fact that they are the masters of the world. I mean, why else would the gods have favoured them? So it's not that the Romans are immoral, they're not. They have a very, very strict morality and people who fall foul of it are traduced. I mean, this is why we have the sense that, you know, Rome in, uh, under Nero, whatever, is so depraved, is so, um, is so debauched. It's because Roman moralists are telling us that. So. The, um, the anxiety about wealth, the anxiety about the fruits of success is, is the constant shadow throughout Roman history. Um, the Romans look at other peoples and they say, none of them really measure up. So they are consistently xenophobic. Um, everybody is seen as being inferior to the, to the Romans. And that's why I think, um, so in the book, for instance, I do not call the people of Judea Jews because I think that it, it implies that there is something so distinctive about the people of Judea that they were always bound to um, re rebel against Rome. This is the way that it's often framed, that the, the Judean war, the destruction of Jerusalem, is the consequence of the fact that there is a kind of religious dynamic going on that the Jews worship the one God, the Romans don't, therefore it was always bound to, to, to end in tears. But this isn't, this isn't the case. The people of Judea have lived under polytheistic rulers for centuries and centuries and centuries. I mean, ever since the, you know, their return from the exile in Babylon. The, the Romans certainly see them as weird and odd, and the fact that they have a, a single God is certainly seen as being odd. But the truth is that the Romans see everybody as being odd. So, you know, the Judeans do not expose their, their, their in, infant babies. 
And this is seen by the Romans as being very odd, but they point out, well, the Germans do the same. So that's a parallel. Um, the Judeans do not castrate themselves and dress up as women, as the Syrians are prone to doing. Um, they do not commit human sacrifice, as the, um, as the Britons are prone to do. Uh, they do not worship gods with animal heads, as the Egyptians are prone to do. So all the people of the Roman Empire are a bit mad. The Judeans are nothing particularly exceptional. What makes it different in the long run is that everybody, because Vespasian and Titus end up ruling the Roman world, they have a stake in making the Judeans seem a more significant and menacing enemy than they were. And for instance, the, the, the great temple of Jupiter on the Capitol, which, which gets burnt down in, in um, AD 69, the year of the four emperors, and then gets rebuilt by Vespasian and then gets burnt again under Titus. Um, the Flavians tax the Judeans and the money that had previously been going to the temple in Jerusalem goes to pay for the repairs to the, 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 the capital. And that does start to penalize Judeans in a way that no other people had been. So it's as a consequence of Flavian policy that Judeans start to kind of mutate into what we would now call in English Jews. But it's also a response of the Judeans themselves to the fact that they, unlike any other people, no longer have a metropolis, they no longer have a mother city, they no longer have a temple in which they can pay the dues of sacrifice. And so they have to start thinking, well, how can we stay true to, to, to our beliefs without these things. And it's this that sets them on the path that will, you know, will result in, 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 in rabbinical Judaism. But it's that that, that that starts to make the Judeans really distinctive. It's, it, it's when they start to become what we would perhaps now call Jews, people with, with rabbis who, whose focus is, is the synagogue rather than the temple. But this isn't the case up until the Judean revolt. I can't, I can't remember how I got onto this subject. I mean, I think it is really, really important because of, because of course, I mean, this seems, you know, this is all a long time ago, Romans and everything, long, long time ago. But the consequence of the destruction of the temple on Jerusalem is absolutely seismic, massively influenced on what becomes rabbinical Judaism, massively influenced on what becomes Christianity. And in the long run, of course, massively influenced on what becomes Islam because the site of the, t of the temple, which when the Roman Empire becomes Christian, the, the site of the temple is left as a rubbish tip. When the Muslims come and they build the Dome of the Rock, supposedly on the site, that then creates a, a, a tension, a sense of competition between Jews and Muslims for, the, for, for control of the, of the site of the temple that is still a massive, massive fracture point right to this day. And if Titus had not burnt the temple, maybe things would be different. We've, we've talked a lot about the sort of radical break that Christianity represented and the contrast between the extremely ruthless pre-Christian Roman world and what I was struck by your saying that Pax for them meant something much more active. Yeah. Um, do you think there's a case to be made, as I seem to recall Gibbon sort of did, that Christianity was the ultimate example of the Romans getting soft and with, yeah. broke the empire? So, so that, that, I mean, that is what Gibbon says, and it's also what Nietzsche says. Uh, you know, Nietzsche says it's a slave morality. Um, I, I think that with, I think actually the opposite. Um, I, I, 
I think what's amazing about the Roman Empire is that it endures as long as it does. It's not that it falls, it's that it endures as long as it does. And the reason why it's surprising that the Roman Empire holds together, and the reason why Romania does not exist when China does, is that there are massive, ge there are massive geographical fracture points across the Mediterranean world and beyond. So if you think about the war between Julius Caesar and Pompey, or between Octavian and um, Mark Antony, that kind of dividing line between the eastern half of the Roman Empire and the western half of, of the empire, going down the Adriatic, um, is one that in the long run will see the, the western half of the empire implode completely and the eastern half become what we now call Byzantium. I mean, it's, it's kind of hardwired into the geography. There are other fracture points. So the Alps is an obvious one, the Pyrenees, the, the Mediterranean, most obviously, the Channel, uh, the, the Rhine, the Danube. It's very, very difficult to make um, imperial structures cohere in antiquity. And so it's staggering that that happens. I think that the, the thing that enables people um, in the long run to continue feeling Roman, even when the, the, the kind of the sinews of government have been cut and the imperial hold ha, has gone, is that they retain a shared identity as Roman, which has come to be fused with Christianity. And the reason that Christianity is so successful, and I think the reason, you know, if you're looking at it in Darwinian terms, why it's adopted, is that in this period that, that Pax covers, this is a world that is full of different cult centers. Um, and the Romans, by and large, feel that they're all equally valid. You know, you can go and pay sacrifice to someone in northern Britain or in Syria or whatever, and these are all gods. But in the long run, the heft of these cult centers depends on them being local. That's the whole point. I mean, as with the temple in, in Jerusalem, it's, it's, it's the fact that they are local that matters. Christianity changes that. The, Christian, the Christians, you know, the Christian people have no metropolis. This is what seems so odd to the Romans in the, in, in the early years of Christianity. They are a kind of universal people without their rootless cosmopolitans, you might want to say. But it's precisely that that ultimately makes Christianity so suited to an empire that is universal in scope, because you can have churches anywhere and they're all consecrated to the same God. So it doesn't matter if it's in Egypt or in East Anglia, they're all consecrated to the same God. And it's that that enables a, a sense of being Roman to endure for as long as it does. So I think that actually Gibbon gets it the wrong way around. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is a great note to end on. Thank you, Tom. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.